I'm going to kick off this intro by sharing a few excerpts from a review of David Levithan's Boy Meets Boy, which is, of course, the book we are discussing today. The review comes from a book blog called The Book Smugglers and was published in 2010 in honor of National Coming Out Day. Boy Meets Boy is an utterly wonderful book about love, friendship, and possibilities. It is short and sweet, a romance at its core, in which boy meets boy, boy loses boy, boy gets boy, but with several different threads interwoven around its central storyline. To everybody who knows him, our protagonist Paul may well be the luckiest guy alive. He has known since he was little that he was gay and has encountered no hurdles along his way. He is surrounded by loving family and friends in a small town that completely embraces and supports its LGBT community. This unnamed town is perhaps utopian, and that may well be the point of the novel, to raise the possibility of such a place existing in the real world. At Paul's school, everybody hangs out together and the boundaries are fluid. In Boy Meets Boy for its protagonist, there are no conflicts from the queer front. Paul is already out, he never has to deal with parental rejection or bullies at school, and he doesn't even want to leave his small town because why would he? So where does that leave us? With a really cool story about a teenage guy and his myriad of friends who is now falling in love with Noah, the new guy at school. With a story where the protagonist is complexly earnest, but not infallible, who makes mistakes and has to deal with them, where his best friend all of a sudden starts dating a jerk and becomes almost a doormat, and Paul has to decide whether to confront her or accept this, where his ex who dumped him decides he wants him back after going through a rough patch accepting that he is bisexual. This happens right when Paul is nicely settling down with Noah and much angst ensues until the nice yet slightly corny ending. A book where the main plot may well be the romance between Paul and Noah, but which is as much about friendship as it is about falling in love. Don't you just love that review? I don't think I could have said it better myself. Boy Meets Boy was published in 2003 and won a Lambda Literary Award the same year. I read it for the first time for this episode and I can't wait to share this discussion with you. You'll hear my guest share about her personal connection to Boy Meets Boy as well as our extensive conversations about this utopian setting and the many characters that live in it. We chat about love triangles and breakups of the friend and romantic variety and the importance of self-expression. We consider that there are different ways to live your truth, plus the fact that our collective understanding of and vocabulary around queerness has evolved since this book was published in 2003. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Ashley Woodfolk. Ashley has loved reading and writing for as long as she can remember, so it should come as no surprise that she worked in children's book publishing for over a decade. Ashley and I actually crossed paths during my own publishing days. Now a full-time mom and writer, Ashley lives in a sunny Brooklyn apartment with her cute husband, her cuter dog, and the cutest baby in the world. Her books include The Beauty That Remains, When You Were Everything, and the Fly Girl series. Ashley has two new books out the day that this episode drops, plus three more coming later this year. On March 9th, the paperback of When You Were Everything will be available, along with the latest Fly Girls installment, Noelle the Mean Girl. Check out the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash episode 136 for links to all of Ashley's exciting forthcoming projects. I am so grateful that Ashley took the time to join us for this episode. Outside of this very cool episode going live, the biggest news in the SSR community right now is the launch of the SSR Book Club. You can get all the details and sign up to join at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. The April selections are The Giver and You Should See Me in a Crown, and I am just so excited that all of this is happening. I have been dreaming of starting this kind of book club for SSR for so long. 
I will be talking a lot about the book club and so many other fun things too on social media, so you can keep up there. Find SSR at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community on Facebook. If you enjoy this episode and feel so inspired, please share about it to your social media followers. I have so much fun seeing Instagram stories about the episodes you're listening to and loving. Don't forget to tag me at SSRPod so I can see. Another way to support SSR is by joining the Patreon community. This is an independent podcast, which means that I have built and grown the show without the financial backing of a larger organization. Patreon contributions make it possible for me to continue making improvements to the podcast and making time investments in fun new things like the SSR Book Club, which is free. Thank you so much to each and every patron tuning in now. You can come on board as an SSR sponsor for as little as a dollar per month. SSR Patreon perks include input on book selections, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, invites to Patreon Zoom parties, monthly video reading recaps, SSR merch, and more. Trust me, it is a lot of fun, and I would love to share these perks with you. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for next steps. As always, I would love to give a shout out to my friends at Libro.fm who give us the opportunity to support independent bookstores when we shop for audiobooks. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. One year into the pandemic, we know all too well how much small businesses have suffered. Let's support those small businesses and fuel our love of books through Libro.fm. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's always a treat for me when I get to read a book for the first time for the podcast, especially when I get to read a book for the first time that I've always wanted to read and just have not really been able to make time for in life. So I was really excited when you suggested the book that we are going to talk about on this episode, David Levithan's Boy Meets Boy. Yay! Ironically, the episode about the Hunger Games just dropped today, and David Levithan is famously the editor of the Hunger Games, and so we name-dropped him a lot in the episode that actually went live today, so I sort of feel like I'm living in like a David Levithan moment, and this was his debut. Yes, this was his debut. He had written, I think he had written a couple of other like weird sort of like for hire kind of books, but this was his first like original YA debut, yeah. Yeah, and we did Nick and Nora on the podcast before. He co-authored that with Rachel Cohn, of course, and I will link to that episode in the show notes for those who want to check it out. But this is the first of his books that was like just his that I've ever read. It was written in 2003. Ashley, I'd love to know a little bit more about why you suggested this book, why you wanted to read it for the podcast, maybe any personal history that you have with it. 
So my personal history with this book is interesting. I read it for the first time, I think the year that it came out. And I think I was a junior in high school. Okay. Um, so I was like right around the same age as the characters. And just like, I guess for, for context, I'm queer, but I didn't like sort of realize it or come out until I was 30. <laughs> but I had like this super weird, like almost, I don't know, infatuation, I guess, with this book. And I think that in retrospect, I think that a lot of my infatuation came from the fact that it's set in this town that is super queer friendly. And it's almost like hyper reality, kind of in the same way that like Ugly Betty was back in the day. But it's just like a really happy, like warm, welcoming town. All of the main characters are sort of these personalities and a lot of them are queer and it was just like normal in this book it's super super normalized obviously he 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 does touch on homophobia a little bit but like for the most part it's a really positive environment for all these kids and so I think that there was a while where I read this book every single Valentine's Day (laughs) I love that story that's so cool (laughs) and I found out later like much much later like in my author sort of world, like once I entered the author world and I was on a panel with him, he said on a panel that he had originally written this story as a Valentine's Day story that he sent to his friends. And sort of coming full circle, this year I was on his his like list of like people who got his Valentine's Day story. He, he does it every year. And so I was like, oh my god and I like emailed him immediately and I was like I'm rereading Boy Meets Boy right now (laughs) oh my god I'm overwhelmed by all of this I'm overwhelmed (laughs) so the first thing I want to say is that it's amazing that you got to be on a panel with David Levithan period like that's I've been on a couple with him now wow like let's take a moment acknowledge your success hello And that story is so cool that it came full circle in that way. And like, you're on his like email distro for Valentine's Day. Like you have arrived, my friend. (laughs) I have. And it was actually really funny the first time I met him because it was like kind of awkward because I was just a complete fangirl. I was like, I don't think you understand like what your books mean to me. Like, I know you're writing about like gay white boys, but still like they meant so much to me. And yeah, just like one other quick David Levithan's story. He read my my first novel, The Beauty That Remains, because Becky Albertalli blurbed it. And then he was like, he emailed me like out of the blue. Like this is the first time I have ever received an email from David Levithan, except for I think he might have invited me to um he does a, a book festival every year um in New York. And he might have invited me to that because somebody else suggested that he invite me to that. But other than that, like literally he had never emailed me but he like emailed me and he was like I just read your book it's so amazing like the character of Logan who is a gay white boy (laughs) was like his story was so relatable and he just was like super complimentary and I literally got the email and dropped my phone so long story short I have a long history with this book it just meant a lot to me for a very long time and I didn't exactly understand why until much later And then as I sort of came into that, after writing the character of Logan and sort of, I think, channeling some of my feelings about queerness into a character that felt comfortable, it was almost like sort of shielding myself a little bit by writing a character who is so different from me. Um, I sort of have been 
slowly circling closer to writing like a black queer girl and I finally did it recently so yeah that was why I and I hadn't read the book in probably five or six years and so that's that was why I wanted to read it again because I was like is it gonna be as good as I remember it being will it still have that like nostalgic feeling or you know I was just curious what it would be like I feel like you reunited with an old friend for this episode, which feels very special. And I always love when a guest chooses a book that is so meaningful because I do think like not everyone sort of will bounce back an idea to me and it's like, oh, wait, I would rather read this. And I think I think part of that is because some some people don't have a story like yours about a book that meant so much to them or a book that they reread every year. So I'm so happy that you picked something that really has a special place in your heart and I'm extra excited now to break it down with you, especially as a newbie. (laughs) I also wanted to point out that in the reading that I did about the book, and I cannot say enough about the Q&A at the back of the edition that I read. I don't know if you read the same one. I don't think so. I have a really old one. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So I could do a whole podcast episode about the author Q&A that's at the back of my 10th anniversary edition. And who knows, maybe I might, but I am I will probably like pepper this conversation with tidbits because I basically have the whole thing highlighted. But he talks about how his like most direct reference is We'd See That by Francesca Leah Block. Have you read that book? Yeah, I did. Like, I mean, years ago, but I, I, so I don't remember it very well, but I have read it. Yeah. So we did an episode about that book on the podcast as well. And I also, I had heard about that book, like through the publishing world and came to it for the first time for that episode. And it blew my mind. And I absolutely like felt the echoes of that in this book, especially in this setting, like you're talking about this utopian setting. I grew up in a very sort of grossly in some ways conservative area. I grew up in like suburban Pennsylvania, very like traditional, like big public high school setting, basically all white. There were like probably a few queer people that I was not even aware of. And those that I were, it it was such a novelty because that was just not something that was ever really talked about. My mom is like pretty progressive. And so I was raised like with an understanding that the world that I was growing up in was very not normal and probably not necessarily like the environment that she would have liked me to grow up in. But that was what I was exposed to. And so to me, the setting that our main character Paul is describing in this book, it is like a fantasy world because having now lived all of these other years, like going to college in DC, living in New York City for almost a decade, like this feels so much more like my normal, like in a world where people are accepting and it's normal to be who you are and all those things. How much of the way that you grew up was reflected in this? Like, did you grow up in a place that was tolerant of differentness of otherness or was this somewhat familiar to you just the sense of acceptance in Paul's town you know it's funny that you went to college in DC because that's where I grew up and then we both ended up in New York yeah so I grew up in Washington DC which I think in and of itself is a pretty progressive area and like a very like liberal city but so I feel like two or three things here (laughs) I went to mostly black schools like my elementary middle and high school were like almost completely black and then my dad is a pastor okay and so I sort of grew up in I feel like in in the black community there is definitely like a lot of toxic masculinity a lot of sort of like stigma around any kind of like queerness or otherness in general. And then I also feel like in the church where I spent a lot of time as a kid, there was not an openness about that kind of thing. So 
like even though we grew up in like starkly different areas and like starkly different environments it sort of had the same like feeling it was very much like there is one way of being and I don't know I think I think a lot of my my sort of hesitancy to to recognize my own queerness or my hesitancy to name it came from the way that I grew up and the environment that, you know, that I was in for the majority of my life. And not to say that, like, my parents were these awful, you know, like, gay-hating people. Like, they weren't at all. They were very open. And, like, I would say, in general, like, pretty, pretty liberal for, you know, people who are pretty devout. And I think my mom, more so than my dad was, with my dad, it was more like he thought of it as a choice. And with my mom, she was kind of like, just love people as they are. And, you know, obviously, like, as an adult, we've had additional conversations about that. It unpacked a lot of that stuff. But I definitely grew up in a in a, a household that was more like Tony's, the character in the book. I don't think my parents would have, like, freaked out. Well, I think my dad would have freaked out if he caught me, like, with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're like, hold on, wait. Uh, yeah, yeah. Honesty. <laughs> but... But I don't think it would have been as terrible as it was for Tony. But yeah, so so I think it was, I don't know, it was interesting to grow up the way I grew up and then to sort of land where I landed. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you did not have any experience like the one that Paul has in this book, which is, like, I'm actually going to go ahead and read the quote that's on the cover of this book, or on the back cover, because I think yeah. this sums it up. It says, I was the first openly gay president of my third grade class. I have seen men holding hands, walking down the street in a big city, and I have read about women getting married in a state that's not so far away. I have found a boy I might just love, and I have not run away. I believe that I can be anyone I might want to be. All of these things give me strength. That's what's on the back cover. I mean, it feels sort of silly for me to just like go ahead and read that, but that captures like the kind of environment that Paul, our main character, has grown up in. Yeah. He was the president of his third grade class. He came out when he was in kindergarten. Right. He <laughs> actually outed him. And in reading the Q&A with David Levithan, I keep wanting to be like the Q&A with David, but you're the only one of the two of us who actually has a relationship with him. So I'm going to keep <laughs> last naming him. In the Q&A, he talks about how the incident with the kindergarten teacher is actually the only like directly autobiographical element of the story. So listeners, the That's narrator. So yeah, isn't that crazy? He recounts how... When he was in kindergarten, his teacher wrote a note on his report card, like, definitely gay and has a strong sense of self. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened to David Levithan, who also grew up in New Jersey, just like Paul. And he, he mentions that, like, a lot of the other characters have elements of him sort of embedded in them, but he wasn't deliberately trying to write any of them as autobiography. I'm taking an autofiction class right now in grad school, and so... I sort of am like obsessing over like, okay, what's auto and what's fiction and everything. Oh, that yeah. is. I'm trying to set that aside and, and sort of reading the Q and a where he is very specific about what parts are auto and what parts are fiction. That was helpful for my like spinning brain these days. So Paul has grown up. He's very secure in who he is. His parents didn't really have much of a reaction to the news. He brought his report card home. They read it. They're like, okay. Cool. Moving on. Cool. Um, they live in this town that's very accepting. And one of the other things that was interesting, I told you, I'm going to keep dropping little tidbits from this Q&A. But it, do it. one of the things that David Levithan said was that he recognizes that 
to a lot of people, this obviously is a utopian environment and a lot of people, especially kids who grew up queer and uncomfortable and closeted, can't relate to the experience that Paul has in this book. He says that he sort of wanted people to remember that like there are people like this in the world. There are people who are accepting, even in 2003 when he wrote this book. But he points out that like, it's just that they all don't live in the same town like in this book and that's what's different and that's why it is sort of shocking even to us in 2021 to see all of these people like happily living together in this magical town in New Jersey yeah I think also though he really does like address it on the page the fact that everybody doesn't have an experience like Paul's like literally multiple characters say it (laughs) yeah and they're like Paul you're lucky like you don't understand like your experience is not what most people experience so I respected even though he created this utopian world and like I was totally ready to suspend my disbelief and like dive right in he does address it and he doesn't leave it sort of as this lingering thing but I mean there are also other sort of hyper realistic or I don't even know the right word to describe it like kind of crazy ass things that are happening in this town right there's like the cheerleading squad that are like on motorcycles obsessed (laughs) ridiculous and obsessed it was amazing (laughs) yeah um there's the character of infinite Darlene who is just the best although interestingly enough and maybe I didn't like read closely enough but I couldn't tell if she was a drag queen or like trans yeah I had the same thought and it's something that I my guess is that it's maybe a function of time and just like the vocabulary that we've developed right because the phrase drag queens is used like liberally in this book Mm -hmm. there's multiple drag queens in the school It seems like there's like a clique of drag queens and they all hang out together. But of course, it's this town. So everybody loves them and gets along with them, too. Right. And it felt to me as if like it wasn't as though Infinite Darlene, who listeners is a literal like six foot seven football player who was also the homecoming queen and is (laughs) one of Paul's many best friends. It wasn't as though she was sort of like set aside as a drag queen and then there are other trans kids in the school like there's no mention I don't believe of any transgender students no, so no. my thought is that it was sort of a matter of vocabulary like maybe either David Levithan like knew that there wasn't an understanding of the trans community when he wrote this book or it wasn't something that he was as aware of I think if this book were written today Infinite Darlene would be trans do you agree? Yeah probably yeah I think I think probably Um, There were only like two instances where I was like, okay, like I can't tell because David Levithan always uses she, her pronouns for Darlene. But there's like one moment where I think, I can't remember who's interacting with her, but the, but Paul says like, they look at her and like see through the makeup down to the boy beneath and then like into her soul or something like I can't remember the exact line but it's something like that and they mentioned the boy beneath and so that made me think oh okay drag queen the other part that made me question it was when like I think it was this was closer to the end Paul is talking to I think he's talking to Ted and he's like they're talking about the chemistry I guess between Infinite Darlene and the Trudy, True, what's the girl's name? Oh, I think the last name was Trilby. Trilby, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what her first name was, but there were, okay, listeners, there were so many characters. There were so many characters. So bear with us here. 
But like Infinite Darlene basically had a rivalry with this other girl who was on the committee for this dance that they were putting together. And there's a moment when they're like, oh, they're competing for the, the same attention the same boys or something like that and then I think Ted says or Infinite Darlene just like wants to be with her and then Paul goes you think Infinite Darlene is a lesbian (laughs) which is hilarious but also made me think like oh wait so maybe Infinite Darlene is trans so yeah I think you're right that it is you know it, it was 20 years ago and the vocabulary was different and the vocabulary is always changing And also, I think the audience might not completely have understood what was happening with Infinite Darlene if David Levithan had made a different choice. Yeah, I think that's all true. The way that I read the first instance of sort of you not being sure what was going on that you mentioned was where, um, who again, there are so many characters. I think it may have been Chuck or one of the other football players that was, quote, like seeing to the boy beneath. The way that I read that was actually that whoever that character was, was like failing to understand what was going mm. on in Darlene. And maybe, I don't know, like, I don't think there's any one quote, like correct reading, but that was how I read it was that like, this was a very like, aggro dude who like, right. didn't understand that you're not supposed to see the boy beneath, like, maybe in that moment, the guy thought that they were seeing like the most vulnerable version of Infinite Darlene, but like Infinite Darlene doesn't want you to see to the boy beneath. Infinite Darlene wants you to see the girl that she is. Right she is that's who she was born to be and that's how she is also choosing to like present herself to the world because that's how she identifies and that also might be a matter of time though like that could be a matter of in in probably 2000 2001 when the author was first conceiving of the story like there's a lot of intricacies here to to deal with at a time when most people weren't writing about these kinds of characters and weren't dealing in this kind of vocabulary so right i don't know maybe somewhere between the two of our readings is is exactly what David Levitan was thinking or the truth and in whatever way you think about it as a reader. But yeah, I had the same reaction where I was like, I think in 2021, Infinite Darlene would be a trans character. And I loved her. I loved every minute of her. I thought she she was was fantastic. I thought she just brought the whole story to life. I'm shocked that this hasn't been adapted yet. And I would think that that's coming, especially now that like we are finally getting queer love stories on the page and on screen. Like this just seems ripe for a Netflix adaptation and I need to see Infinite Darlene on screen. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. She'll be so great. So (laughs) as we've been mentioning, there's so many characters here and it's, I don't even know what direction to go in, but I guess let's talk about Paul first. And I think in reading a lot of the reviews of this book, both from like trade publications like Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, and also just from like bloggers who are sharing their experience reading the book, The thing that is constantly jumping out about Paul, about this book in general, is that because Paul is not a character who has all of these traumas on the page about coming out, about being rejected by his family, um, about some of the narratives that we have seen in a lot of queer lit, particularly of the YA variety, we sort of just get to see him like living the kinds of dramas and like day in and day out difficulties of teens in like other more mainstream lit which in 2003 was a really big deal yeah I mean now thankfully we're getting so much more queer YA lit which is awesome and we read a few for new reads November last year um on the podcast we read you should see me in a crown I love that book (laughs) so great and I felt similarly about that book where like the main character her queerness was not something that was like it wasn't something that was really even discussed that much like consistently throughout the book and it wasn't she wasn't tormented over it. And so 
it created this room for like there to be other conflicts that were just about her life and her like managing her day-to-day like affairs and friendships and like just being a teenager right but that was written in 2020 this book was written in 2003 and so it's pretty revolutionary that like we have a main character in Paul who he's queer but his like primary conflict in this book is not his queerness it's just his relationship just the way that every other protagonist in every other YA romance has quote like gotten to experience like right that was a big deal and I just really enjoyed reading that and again I kept having to like ground myself in the year that this was written and what a big fucking deal it was for it to come out then yeah and yeah I think that resonated with a lot of the reviewers that I I was reading their reviews like especially queer reviewers who were like it was so refreshing at whatever age they read it to be like oh no this is just like a person who is like dealing with shit like every other teenager and just sort of like leveling the playing field of Mm -hmm. what this character is dealing with yeah for sure I have the same feelings about Paul just that like I liked that he was just this normal kid who like you know had his family that he was dealing with like his older brother is like adorable and hilarious his parents are great I loved his mom making like the state pancakes Um, hilarious. yeah his family was great and yeah I liked that his conflict was really around it was really around two boys right it's basically a love triangle story where there is one person who is clearly like as, as love triangles usually are, there's one person who you're clearly rooting for. But I kind of want to talk about Noah because I, it's funny because when I, every other time when I read this book, I did not have this thought. But when I was reading it this time, I was like, oh, Noah is like Manic Pixie Dream Boy. Like he totally, totally. is. He That's totally so is. true. Right? But I yeah. mean, it's almost like it doesn't matter because we never had a manic pixie gay dream boy before so I think that that is why like it had never occurred to me on any other reading that that's what was happening and even now reading it like it still makes sense it still like works and he's not he's not so manic pixie that it's like unbelievable like I was still like there for it and I was like ready like I don't know I feel like this book is like sort of like YA wish fulfillment like it has everything that you would like expect a YA novel to have like Noah's like painting attic that he has to like go through like a crawl space and like climb a ladder to like get to this like space that is just his like what teenager wouldn't want that you know right it reminded me of in the movie adaptation of The Princess Diaries yeah. for like special like attic lofts that everybody was fantasizing about when the movie came out when we were kids. Yes. But also like artistic and right. cooler because it the, he had some talent to go with it. Like there was a good reason that he had it. Right. Um, he like only brought Paul there. there. Yeah. It was romantic. Yes. The whimsy and like the painting music. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm here for this, but also like pump the brakes. <laughs> yeah, I think Manic Pixie Dream but I can't even say it. I think Manic Pixie Dream Boy is definitely like a fair description of him. He is so dreamy, but I do think if you met him in real life, like could be a little bit exhausting to like yeah. constantly keep up with his artistic approach to life like sometimes I don't want to paint to music in an attic sometimes I want to sit on a couch and watch a really bad tv show and like I want you to be okay with that I need you to be okay with that if this is going to work and I feel like I do feel like Paul needs to watch bad tv sometimes too like they're going to have to figure that out down the road yeah 
Also, like, his whole room. Like, didn't he have, like, a race car, like, a racetrack on his wall or something? I don't even know what he had on his wall, actually. <laughs> his aesthetic, as I mentioned, was windy. Whimsy. I feel like that's, like, something that you put on your, like, Pinterest board when you're planning a wedding. Like, my theme. <laughs> even that is, like, sort of... That's not that's not a mainstream wedding theme because it's not a real theme. It's just like I don't have wedding colors. My theme is just whimsy. Like I don't <laughs> have a theme or colors. We're just gonna be whimsical. That's uh, Noah's approach to all things. And of course, he's the new kid, which he has to be in order to really achieve manic pixie dream boy status because he's new to town and like just discovering things around him. And he brings with him some heartache. He had a bad breakup with a boy named Pitt, which I thought was like a great character name, by the way. Like, yes. nice choice, David Levithan. <laughs> Love that. I do enjoy a one-syllable name. Yeah, and like, it's just Pitt. Just, yeah, Pitt. I can picture him in my head. Oh, and yeah. even though like meet cute between Paul and Noah is good, like they meet at this, like they're out at, there's live music, but they're also in a bookstore. Like I wasn't quite sure exactly like what kind of store it was. But like, look, it didn't matter. Like the right. intro of this book is like ridiculous. <laughs> but like in that, like ridiculous in like the best way. Like I think even, I think that that was part of the reason. I remember picking this book up in the bookstore and like reading the first couple of pages and being like, what the hell is going on? Because it's literally like these three people, they jump in a car, yes. they go to their, like their one friend is like telling Bible stories because mm -hmm. he's like a church kid. Mm -hmm. Then they go to like a diner or something. Of course. And of course. And then <laughs> they go to this bookstore where there is a band playing. And then he meets the kid in the aisle. And I remember this line, like there are like three or four lines from this book that I just remember like spontaneously. But I remember him saying that Noah had a birthmark on his neck that was the shape of a comma. And I was like, be still my beating heart. <laughs> right, be still my little writer heart. Right, <laughs> like what is happening? You're in a bookstore and you beat you meet a boy with a comma birthmark? Like, Jesus. Yeah, that's sort of a dream. I mean, if I weren't already married, I would definitely be out there on the hunt for somebody who has a birthmark in the shape of a comma. That should have been a requirement when I was <laughs> single and ready to mingle. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's a good detail. So he meets Noah, and Noah is his whole Manic Pixie Dream Boy self. Things are, like, going pretty well. They go up into his painting attic. They paint to music, which is... Noah's thing the writing in this book is like beyond belief it's so beautiful I thought about pulling out a couple of like specific passages but the truth is I could open it and read anything yeah. on my it would be amazing um there's nothing in this book that isn't like perfectly written I would read anything that David Levithan ever writes I felt that way about Nick and Nora as well I'm sure I would feel that way about anything else I ever read of his and so the scenes of Paul and Noah hanging out are just super dreamy and I did kind of want to live in them even if I don't think that I would do that great with the painting in the attic for like that long <laughs> But then, of course, things get tricky. So, listeners, the title Boy Meets Boy refers to the classic trope of Boy Meets Girl. It's a play on that romance trope, which, as you may know, is like Boy Meets Girl. Boy typically does something stupid, loses girl, and then they end up back together. It's like the storyline of every 90s romantic comedy that you've ever seen. But, of course, in this book, we have two boys, and there's a third boy. As you mentioned, Ashley, there's a love triangle, and things are going pretty well between Paul and Noah. 
And then Kyle enters the mix. Kyle, like tell me your first impressions of Kyle upon meeting him again for this reread. What is your vibe on this guy? I just found him annoying. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like the compassionate part of me that I feel like would be more compassionate if we weren't in a global pandemic (laughs) was just like, Kyle, like get out of the way of love. Like, you're ruining everything you're ruining everything these people are meant to be you're annoying but like the more compassionate side of me understands like how someone could be in that situation have that reaction like I guess to catch everyone up like Kyle and Paul were dating things got kind of serious Kyle freaked out about it and then basically broke up with Paul and then proceeded to ignore him and pretend he didn't exist which would be incredibly painful under like normal circumstances. But I also, it was complicated by the fact that Kyle added this, like he told people that Paul had tricked him into being gay. And so, yeah, I just like, I didn't, I understood Paul being obviously hurt by all of that, but I did not understand Paul being open to Kyle when he sort of came crawling back. Yeah, I mean, Kyle is an interesting character. Um, He's very realistic. Very realistic. I feel like especially for a kid in high school, I wish we'd known more about his family. I don't think we learned a lot about his background because to me, this character like reeks of shame, like, Mm -hmm. which is very upsetting. And I think as you said, like, if we are to have a more compassionate reading of him, it's like being 15 or 16 or 17 years old and feeling like you're not accepted by your family or by your community, even in a community that is as loving and as accepting as the one that David Levithan has created in this book that is bound to create shame. And Mm -hmm. it of course caused him to act out in a very cruel. And I mean, I, I I don't think either of us would say that like, it's okay, of course, way because he then attempted to pit the whole school against Paul, which of course is impossible because Paul is like the most popular guy around. (laughs) Yeah, But he really put Paul in a position to like, look like the bad guy to look like somebody who would trick another person into being gay, which is not a thing that happens, of course. And there's just a very weird attempt to like flip the power in that situation. And my reading, of course, is that it's rooted in shame. And I wish that we knew more about Kyle so that I could give him even more of the benefit of the doubt, because I don't know enough really to say the background that he's coming from. We're looking at Tony, who is Paul's best friend who goes to another school who does come from a family that is very homophobic and Tony does have a lot of shame. So maybe the idea is that Kyle is somewhere kind of like between in between, in between Tony and Paul. He lives in this more accepting community because Tony does not live in this like haven of a town, but his parents are perhaps like a little bit less tolerant. I don't know, but he's awful to Paul. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like I think if I struggled with anything with Paul, it was like, he was so happy all the time. And nothing got him down, really. And like, even when he was dealing with heartache, like he was relentlessly optimistic, which I think is a nice example for teens. But like, I think that this character might be hard to deal with in real life. And that like, he is constantly compassionate. He's constantly like, looking for the like, for the bright spot in a situation. And I think in his relationship with Kyle, it put him in a position to let somebody back into his life who had hurt him very deeply. And in doing so, really put his relationship with Noah, which was a much healthier 
relationship at risk. Yeah. Spoiler alert, it all works out fine. They end up together. <laughs> but basically, like Kyle comes crawling back, like you mentioned, and he apologizes. And he also talks about the fact that his aunt just passed away. And he has this experience where he like watched his aunt and uncle go through the final days of his aunt's life together. And it just like sort of provided this perspective for him about what's important. And he really like wants to be with the person that he loves, which is like so intense for a high schooler yeah. to be happy and he also sort of is questioning like am I into just guys am I into girls he's kind of having a crisis with his bisexuality which he like doesn't seem to think is a thing and Paul being Paul is like no it's totally a thing like you have to embrace all sides of yourself but it just made me sad for Paul and I think I think Paul is a great example of why boundaries are really important as you get older because Paul saw that Kyle, who he had like unfinished business with. I mean, I think that's important to note too. Like even early in the book, before he meets Noah, I think we hear what happened with Kyle. And Paul is sad. Like Paul is on such good terms with everyone in his school, but like he can't quite figure out what happened with Kyle and he's not comfortable seeing Kyle at school. And so he wants to make it right. And so as soon as he's given the opportunity to do that, even if it does put his new relationship at risk, he's like, great, let me know what I have to do so that we can get over this hump. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that Paul is a really, it was, it's funny. Like as you were describing it, I was like, oh, I've totally done that. (laughs) But I think Paul is like a really compassionate character. Yeah. And I think that, that, I think that a character who was more vindictive would not have worked in this story. And I think it makes sense that Paul would, would be coming from such a compassionate place because of the way that he has experienced his whole life right like he you know started out with a teacher just saying like oh he's gay and it's fine right Mm -hmm. like so a person who grew up in that kind of environment would like naturally sort of be more accepting and more open and have more space like inside of themselves I think to take care of someone who maybe didn't have the same kind of, who wasn't given the same kind of grace. So I think it makes sense for Paul's character for him to be this way. But there were moments where I was just like, God damn it, Paul, like get it together. Right. Like you don't have to kiss him. Like you can be kissing him. You absolutely, he absolutely did not have to kiss him. But yeah, I, I understood his motives, even as I was like, please stop. Yeah. Well, I also think like everybody's had a Kyle at some point yeah. in their life. Like you don't get to be an adult without dealing with a Kyle somewhere yeah. along the way to different degrees, of course. But I think everybody has experienced like some slightly unfinished piece of romantic business cropping back up in your life at a very inopportune time, especially with social media. Like right. <laughs> there's always like the ex that like, even if they don't DM you at a weird time, like maybe a picture of them pops up and you're like, oh shit, like now I'm thinking about them again. And like, right. I would to be doing that right now like I I do think that the struggle that Paul has with just like reconciling his feelings with Kyle and trying to figure out how to manage them as he's starting a new relationship that felt very relatable to me yeah and I of course was happy that like everything worked out because Noah was absolutely the right choice and I I liked that Paul had to put in some work to get Noah back like yeah as much as this does play into the like boy meets girl now boy meets boy trope it's not as if he like made one romantic speech and Noah was like, okay, great, we're back. Because yeah. I think 
think that happens a lot in movies, especially where it's like, it just takes one speech and one apology. And Paul embarks on like a, a week, week long, long. Yeah. <laughs> effort. And every day he does a different like dramatic romantic gesture to make sure that no one knows that he's like serious. He's very into this like show don't tell idea of proving his love. He does things like stay up all night to make like hundreds of origami flowers, which the author then describes are like hanging all along the hallway Hallway. at school so that then they like intersect over Noah's locker. I mean, this is a lot of flowers. It's like a whole decorating effort. The thing that I really liked and I would imagine maybe you liked too as a writer is when he writes a list of a hundred words that he likes and their definitions and they're all kind of like funky words that he'd never heard of before. There's an original song, there's letters. roles of old film, letters. And then my personal favorite was the day that he just gave him space. I yeah. thought that that was really interesting on David Levithan's part and actually like very true to the way that humans are often wired in real life. Yeah, no, that was lovely. I think he just dropped a letter in his mailbox and is like, I hope you have a good day or something. And then like, yeah. he doesn't say anything to him for the rest of the day. Yeah. Sometimes that's all you want. Like yeah. you're like, great. Let me know that you're thinking of me and then like, let me live my life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that was, those pages were my favorite. What did you think about like Tony and Paul's relationship? That was actually, I think one of my favorite parts of the book and some of the reviews that I read said the same thing to me. Tony is just like a very relatable figure because of the kind of place that I grew up even though I don't necessarily share the experience of like having a best friend who was queer and closeted. Um, I did grow up with a best friend who grew up in like a very religious family. And when I met her, like she was sort of, she wasn't trying to rebel against them at all. Um, And over the course of our friendship, especially as we got into college, like she was definitely figuring out how to test the limits and like, how do you how do you talk to your parents about that? And her family, like they're the loveliest people in the entire world. And just figuring out like, what am I comfortable pushing back against with mm-hmm. my family? What am I not comfortable pushing back against my family? And even outside of her, like I just grew up with so many people who were trying to like figure out how to express themselves in ways that maybe were different than what their families expected of them. And so I think I just saw a lot of people that I grew up with in Tony. And I think the thing that I especially appreciated about their relationship was the moment towards the end of the book where Tony is like, I get that you are able to like be yourself, Paul. And I think it's really cool that like you're so comfortable with who you are. And I I get that you want me to just like run away from home and come live at your house and eat state-shaped pancakes um, with your amazing family. And like, that's super cool of you. But like, I love my family. Like I thought that was really cool. And I think that giving Paul a moment to like consider like super cool for you that you are so comfortable with who you are. And I think there were actually a few characters who in different ways said to Paul, like, well, you're lucky. Like, great that you're so self-confident. It's great that you're so self-assured. Not everybody has that experience for whatever reason, whether it's their sexuality or whether it's just like not having self-confidence for another reason. But Tony has this very direct conversation with him. And it, it sort of brought to mind this idea of like love languages to me where like Tony recognizes that his family might not be able to love him in the way of saying like, we 100% accept you and understand everything that you do. Mm-hmm. But he he does realize that like his family still cares about him. And he's like, if I just like blow this off, then like I might never speak to them again. And right. I want to sort of like 
figure out how we can get to a place where we understand each other. And I actually, I bookmarked one little passage from that scene because I really thought it was well done. Tony says, I know you won't understand this, but they love me. It would be much easier if they didn't, but in their own way, they love me. They honestly believe that if I don't straighten out, I will lose my soul. It's not just that they don't want me kissing other guys. They think if I do it, I will be damned. And I want to make it very clear that I do not agree with where Tony's parents are coming from, of course. But I do appreciate the fact that David Levithan gave us this really like nuanced character who was like, I have to figure this out. Like, I love my family. I love who I am. I want to figure out who I am, but I also love my family. And I need to figure out how both of those things can be true. And I don't know, I guess that conversation, like the tension between the two of them about how to deal with this, it feels like very resonant with just being an adult, like just figuring out like how you can kind of hold two truths at one time and like maintain relationships with people, even when they don't necessarily agree with things that you really holds dear. I don't know. I just thought their relationship did a great job of illustrating like real shit about the world. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like Tony, I feel like Tony is a YA character that I have like so much respect for. Like Mm -hmm. just the way that he was so willing to stand up to everyone, right? Yeah. He was always quietly, subtly and like firmly, but like not even aggressively at all. Like he was always standing up to his friends and telling them, like, dropping truth bombs, right, left and right. He was always willing to stand up to his parents and tell them exactly how he felt and why, even when it was so hard for him, you know, even when he burst into tears afterwards. But, like, he had those moments of bravery, and I really, really respected both Tony as a character and David Levithan for writing a character that sort of, I feel like in the queer community, you have a lot of, a lot of folklore, I guess, around like living your truth. And I feel like Tony really embodied that in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see, especially in a YA novel. So yeah, I really, I really liked Tony. And yeah, their relationship together, like you could tell that Paul really, he really listened to Tony and Tony really listened to Paul. And at first I was getting a little annoyed with Paul almost because I, it, at times it felt like he was taking advantage of Tony and like Tony was always listening to his problems, but like Paul wasn't kind of being there for him in, in the same way. But then there were a couple of scenes where you definitely saw the roles reverse and you saw that it was like sort of this healthy relate like friendship that, there was an equal sort of give and take in a way, in a way that like nobody was taking score. And I really, really loved that. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And I think in some of the other queer lit that I've read, a book that comes to mind is one that we did last June for Pride Month, Keeping You a Secret. I don't know if you've read that book, but the protagonist in that book comes out to her mom and her mom is horrible to her. Um, worse than Tony's parents are to Tony in this book. And she leaves, she moves in with her girlfriend. And I think I've seen a similar narrative in a lot of other queer lit that I've read. And I fully understand why, to your point, like that living your truth story, that living your truth narrative is really important and empowering. I think that it's a different kind of bravery that we're seeing on Tony's part in this book, not necessarily better or worse than what we see in other queer narratives, but a different take on like what it means to be brave and like how can I figure out how to be myself and be honest about who I am and live the way that I want to live and live the way that like I was born to be 
while also maintaining the love for my family that's equally important to me. Yeah. So I think it's just like a different type of courage that Tony is showing us and I really enjoyed him as a character. I think we have to touch on Joni briefly before we start to wrap up. Joni is Paul's like longtime best friend. He came out to her when he was in second grade and she like everybody else in his life was like, okay, cool. <laughs> like I think she had been trying to kiss him when it happened and he was like, nah, like that's not going to work for me. And Joni's big drama is that she is dating the wrong guy. She's dating like the super wrong guy. She's dating this guy named Chuck who's sort of claimed to fame is that he was awful to infinite Darlene. And that's obviously not going to work for us. And it did not work for Paul. And Paul is struggling throughout the book to figure out like how to deal with that. How do you deal with your best friend dating somebody who not only like you dislike, but in this situation sort of is against everything that you believe in is in opposition to who you are as like a core human being. And Paul actually even teams up with Joni's like other ex Ted, who is sort of like an asshole too, in his own way. <laughs> trying to get Joni to break up with Chuck. And I actually really resonated with that part of it because when I was in high school, my best friend had a habit of dating people that I didn't like. And like, I have very clear memories of just getting into literal screaming matches with him in the hallway at school because I was like that kind of dramatic teenager who just like, I thought that I knew everything. And, you know, we were walking to like the newspaper office at the end of the day. And I was trying to have like a really serious heart to heart with him. And I just, I think that that's very relatable. And in reading again, the reviews for this book, something that came up again and again was that like, there's so many super universal themes and moments in this book that like, even in 2003, when people weren't necessarily used to reading queer lit and queer YA lit, like there's so many parts of this book that are relatable for everyone for like every teen reader, especially whether it's your best friend dating somebody that you don't like, whether it's an ex coming in and making your life really complicated or parents who don't get who you are. Like there are so many things. And then even the core love story, Paul and Noah, that's something magical that everybody strives for. Um, but for me, what really was resonant was that argument between Paul and Joni. Yeah. That whole dynamic is something that is like, I'm very sensitive to. I wrote a whole book about a friendship breakup. <laughs> No, um, friendship breakups are hard. For the record, yeah. I did not break up with my friend over this, but That's it did good. put a lot of pressure on our, you know, on our little baby teenage friendship. Yeah. I don't know. It made me a little bit sad um, because there was so much time spent on um, Noah and Paul's relationship. And I understand, like, that's what the book is about. It's boy meets boy, right? But I really wanted Joni and Paul to, like, find a resolution. And they're not really given a real ending. Like, at the end of the book, they're sort of like, they have this, like, moment, um, the fight that I think you're, like, referring to, where they're, they need to show up for Tony, basically. Tony needs them. And Paul is worried that Joni is not going to come because Chuck doesn't want her to. And they have this moment, and it's awful. And then, you know, Joni shows up at the last minute, which, you know, I was glad that she showed up because if she hadn't, I would have, like, lost all respect for her. Yeah. But it was also left open-ended, and I think that was a deliberate choice. I think that maybe if they had been given, like, a neater, cleaner ending, it would have felt fake. Mm-hmm. But part of me still wanted it. Like, I was like, I'm glad that Noah and Paul got there happy, happily ever after, but like, I'm concerned. <laughs> 
I'm concerned about Joni and Paul and like what the future yeah. of their relationship will look like if there is a future to their relationship. Yeah, Joni just kind of made me sad because I just felt like I, I feel like usually in most situations there's two sides to every story. But I felt like she was just dead wrong. Like Chuck just seemed like a bad guy all around. Yeah, and all of her life choices, I feel like generally, whether she was with Ted or with Chuck, were dictated by whoever she was dating. And she didn't seem to have great taste. And like, even when she was occasionally single, which I don't even think happened that much, like, I still felt like she was kind of a sidekick to Paul and Tony. Like, I feel like she's just always kind of being dragged around by like another guy. Yeah. And I wanted more for her. Like, I'd love to see a story where she like breaks up with Chuck and like maybe goes to college somewhere and maintains her relationships with Paul and Tony, but also comes into her own because I just, there has to be more to her. Like she has this long friendship with Paul. I wanted to know more. And like her whole narrative was tied up in her bad relationships and that sucks. Yeah, no, that did suck. And she was kind of like, she was the only sort of prominent female character other than Infinite Darlene. So yeah, it was just kind of a bummer. Joni was kind of a bummer. Do you think that Kyle and Tony start dating when the yeah. narrative is over? Yeah, I Absolutely. hope so. That's my dream. Yeah. Be so perfect. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like the way that they were talking and the way that the way that it was left, I feel like I could see that being a very like natural progression. Yeah, I feel like they were at the right places to have that relationship. Like they were both at the right place, the right time. And that would work out very well for Paul also, because I do think he wants to maintain a friendship with Kyle. Yeah. He's definitely a guy who's like friends with all of his exes. He wants to be friends with all of his exes for the rest of time. Right. And it was just driving him crazy that he couldn't figure out what happened with Kyle. And if Kyle dates his best friend, then it works out really well for him because he can just be friends with him. On the whole, Ashley, how did this rereading experience hold up with your memory of the book? Has it generally held up for you? Did you feel disappointed? I know it's been a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think it generally held up really well, like surprisingly well, like even moments that were totally like historically accurate, but like not timely at all now like there's a point where they go to a video store and it's like even in a dream utopian town like there would be no video store anymore (laughs) but I think I think this this book will always have sort of a nostalgic whimsy for me I think it'll always give me the warm and fuzzies the beginning I especially love the the way the story begins and the way the story ends I just feel like David Levithan really creates such an atmospheric experience of the town and of the characters, you really feel like you are there with them. And it's just like, it's so different, I think, from anything that I had read at the time. And still, even now, it's just very, very, it's a very unique reading experience. It's also super short, it's less than 200 pages. And I remember when I was younger, I would read it in a day. Like I didn't, I didn't have a child then, but like, (laughs) I would literally just like sit down and I would read it like every Valentine's day. So yeah, I think it held up. It still, still has a special place in my heart. Well, next time you receive an email Valentine from David Levithan or someday, hopefully when you get to see him on another panel, and I'm sure you'll appear on more with him. Let us know that SSR slash me love. I love this book. I'm so happy that I finally read it. Thank you for encouraging me to do so and for reminding me to put it back on my TBR list. Other than Boy Meets Boy, what have you been reading lately and loving that you would recommend to the SSR community? It can be YA. It doesn't have to be. Just anything that you've really loved. 
I was asked to blurb Leah Johnson's new novel, Rise to the Sun, which is coming out later this year, I believe. I think in the summer, yeah. And it is delightful, just like you should see me in a crown, but like two black girls at a music festival. And it is just my heart's joy. <laughs> um, what else have I read? I feel like I've been reading a lot of things that are not out yet. That's okay. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm freaking out about the Leah Johnson news. Listeners, I was making very dramatic, ridiculous faces while Ashley was telling us about it. So excited to hear that her new book is coming out. Not surprised at all that it's charming and delightful, and I cannot wait to read it this summer. Um, but so I will lovely. be sure to keep everybody in the loop about when that's coming out, and very jealous that you got a chance to take a look at it early. Yeah, it is so great. What else have I read recently? This is old, but... I just reread Julie and Julia. <laughs> That's comfort reading. Yeah. That is like, I can tell that you needed something cozy if you I went did. back to that book. <laughs> I did. Um, and yeah, I feel like I've been doing a lot of rereading. I've been reading things that are not out yet. And I've been reading things that came out like a long time ago. I reread uh, Cheryl Strait's Tiny Beautiful Things. That's just like a book that I return to again and again. I'm like looking back, like what's on my table? It's an endless stack, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's massive. I feel like those are the ones that I've read most recently. Those are good recommendations. I will include links to them in the show notes for this episode. And of course, I will include links to Ashley's books too. Listeners, if you're listening in real time, we're going to be running a giveaway over on the SSR pod Instagram feed. So come on over and make sure you enter. Ashley, is there anything that we should know about things that you're working on or your latest book? What kind of little snacks do you want to give to our listeners about your books okay so I have I kind of have a lot of things so today March 9th when you are everything my friendship breakup book is on sale in paperback fly the fly girl series the third book in the series which is called Noel the mean girl that one is also out today and these books are sort of like little bite-sized novels they're great for people who are reluctant readers or if you just want a little pocket-sized novel to take with you somewhere they're all super super short and really fast easy to get through later in the summer I have Blackout which is a novel I co-wrote with Danielle Clayton Nick Stone Angie Thomas Nicola Yoon and Tiffany Jackson and it is six black love stories set in New York during a blackout and it's going to, we just actually had the cover reveal today. Sorry, not March 9th today, actual recording today. <laughs> right. So now we're like, we're moving between like past us and future us. But yes. yes, the cover will be available as listeners are, are hearing this. Absolutely. And then what else? In later on in the fall, I'm in another anthology called Battle of the Bands. And that is just about a high school's Battle of the Bands competition. It's 16 interlinking stories. And then next year, I have my first novel in verse coming out. And this is the one that I mentioned, sort of like, as I was circling closer to writing about Black queer love, it's called Nothing Burns as Bright as You. And I'm really excited about it. It's sort of about a toxic queer relationship between two girls that are not quite girlfriends. And it circles around a day when they set a fire and their relationship spirals out of control. So. Ooh, yeah, yeah. You just have a couple of things going on. Like, <laughs> a couple of things. You have, okay, so you have two books coming out in one day. First of all, like that's major. Yes. yes. And so many other amazing projects coming up, listeners. I will be sure to keep you updated going forward. I always like to 
keep the community informed as our friends of the show, author guests have new things coming out and releasing. And um, I will be sure to make sure everybody knows as your work comes out. And I will have links to everything in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Boy Meets Boy. I highly recommend picking up a copy. In doing so, you will support independent bookstores through bookshop.org, as well as the SSR podcast at no extra cost to you. So pick up a copy. I really enjoyed it. I too read it in a very short period of time. It was delightful. And again, I'm so grateful that you reminded me that I wanted to read it. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me amid writing like 18 books at a time. (laughs) And um, it was so nice getting to know you. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>